Thank you, JD and team, for leading us in worship this morning. What a sweet time it was. Now we turn to God's Word. Today we'll be in uh, the book of 3 John. If you flip your Bible upside down and turn just past Revelation, you'll come uh, to Jude and then 3 John tucked right in there. And as you turn there, I want to tell you a story. The first party I went to when I was in East Germany, lived there for a couple of years, and I get to this party and uh, on the table with snacks and, and other food is one Berliner, which is this kind of jelly-filled donut pastry thing. There's one for each person at this party. And there's two things that you need to understand about me uh, at the outset of the story. First, I genuinely do not like surprises. And second, I really hate mustard. Um, so there's this expectation that, um, you know, throughout the night, everyone grabs their little Berliner and eats it. And the host of the party uh, knows which of the Berliners uh is a prank in which are pastries. Um, so I grab mine uh, as a you know really uh, dumb American. I don't inspect the thing at all uh, and just take a giant bite and get a mouthful of mustard. And I literally want to just vomit uh, while also not offending all of these uh, very nice East Germans that I would like to be friends with. And everyone laughed. And it was a good time for everyone but me. Um, and I learned a valuable lesson to wait until later in the party to pick a pastry and to maybe look a little more closely at them. My pastry, I thought, would be delicious. It was one of my favorite pastries that I was introduced to in the whole time that we lived in Europe. It looked just like the ones that I had eaten dozens of times. But with this one, something was wrong under the surface that made this donut a prank and not a pastry. You see, there is a way of living that can look Christian, but isn't. And as we think about the last years in our country, in America, you can probably quickly recall examples of people who claimed Christ but lived for themselves, who purported to propagate the gospel all the while platforming themselves. And the impact of this has not stayed far off from each of us here today. We have seen those we love dearly impacted and formed by the vitriol of Twitter by the divisiveness of Facebook, shaped and bent by the podcast prophetic wicked nonsense. We have felt the impact as we have seen heroes of the faith morally fall. We've been rocked by the reality of sexual abuse in churches. This hasn't just wrought hurt in our own hearts, but the influence of all of this has led to discord and disunity among the people of God. And amidst these trying times, I wonder, have we stopped 
to consider the depth of that impact upon our own hearts. Last week, Ron Jor asked a critical question in the first half of 3 John. The glory of the name of Jesus to go forward, what's going to work? What's it going to take for the gospel to go forward? And in examining the life of Gaius in the opening verses, together we discovered the answer. It is teamwork that propels the gospel forward in trying times. It is the unity of truth and love embodied by the members of Christ's body that displays the fullness of the glory of our Savior's life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the world. So this week we turn to the last six verses of John's third letter to examine our own hearts as we are challenged by the conduct in the text of Diotrephes and exhorted to follow in the way of Demetrius. John writes these last six verses as a caution to Christians living in trying times, asking each of us, who will you follow? And then how will you live? Who will you follow? And then how will you live? We'll see in the text today, John wants to demonstrate that if it is teamwork that truly propels the gospel forward in trying times, then there can be no I in team. John starts this argument by exhibiting the danger to not only the health of the gospel, but also to gospel mission and examining Diotrephes' prideful conduct in verses 9 and 10. In doing so, he challenges the reader to consider whether they are willing to sacrifice mission for self as they follow their own ambition. Next, John wants to examine who it is this community of believers should imitate as they seek to propel the gospel forward in trying times. Here in verses 11 and 12, as well as in the verses that we looked at last week, John wants to establish that gospel fidelity worth imitation is the goodness of God made manifest. That is, as we look to those whose faith we seek to imitate, to follow in, we should look first to God's own goodness. So this is the path that we're set out on today. And as we come to today's text, Let's first ask God for help as we work through his, this letter. Let's pray. God, you are here. You have brought us to this place, not by accident or happen chance, but because you desire to do a transformative work in each person here today. So I pray, God, that we would come to today's text with expectation. That you do not desire for us to leave as the same people that we walked in as. And we plead that your spirit would have freedom and power to move in this place. To reveal and convict us of sin. 
to demonstrate our clear need for you and to show us your kindness and mercy demonstrated so clearly for us in the cross of Jesus Christ in his perfect life, his death, his resurrection and ascension to your right hand. God, we pray that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead would be at work in this place today. So God, move in our hearts. Transform our lives. Show us your glory today. Amen. So again, we're in the book of 3 John. Hopefully you have made it there. We will be starting in verse 9. The word of the Lord says this. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but would rather not write it with pen and ink. But I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. As we wade into today's text, the contrast of Gaius' character in last week's text and Diotrephes' conduct in this week's text is striking immediately. Gaius' character demonstrated a humble commitment to love strangers as brothers. In verse 5, a generous desire to love them in truth to the utmost in verses 6 and 8, all for the sake of the name in verse 7. But that is not how John speaks of Diotrephes. John doesn't mince words in expressing concern over Diotrephes to Gaius and the other believers in this area. But what is so dangerous about Diotrephes that John feels compelled in this short letter to speak so directly, so forcefully? If we place today's text in the context of our work through John's gospel and also through his letters, it's clear that his primary concern with Diotrephes is not over doctrine. In John's first two letters, he goes directly after doctrine, directly after those who he feels like are teaching a way that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is explicit. We saw it in 1 John. We saw it in 2 John. And now we're in 3 John, and something different is happening. As we read this text, it seems then that Diotrephes was a powerful, likely wealthy leader and layperson within this community with whom John had much in common, actually. Both stood resolutely against the cessationists who sought to further a view of Jesus that denied Christ's humanity. 
But in the aftermath of this controversy, of this doctrinal debate, something rose up in Diotrephes. Look at the text in verse 9. He liked to put himself first. The primary problem John has with Diotrephes isn't his doctrine, it's his heart. The primary problem John has with Diotrephes is not his doctrine, it's his heart. John's warning to the church facing trying times is that you can get the technicalities of doctrine all the way right and still completely miss the heart of the gospel. There is a way of living that looks Christian but isn't. Here in the text, Diotrephes uses gospel gospel means for selfish ends. That is, he is leveraging his position in the church, his sound understanding of doctrine, and any other benefit that God has given him for the sake of his name. Why Gaius was busy working to be an outpost of love for the mission of God for the sake of the name, that is the name of Jesus, in today's text, Diotrephes has twisted the gospel for the sake of his name. Look back at the text starting toward the end of verse 9. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. And John writes, so if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. There is a decay in Diotrephes' behavior. What started as ambition, he liked to put himself first, descended into arrogance. He refused the elder or refused to acknowledge authority, which further deteriorated into accusations He talked wicked nonsense and into abuse, throwing brothers out of the church. The ambition of Diotrephes unchecked blossomed and bore fruit, not of gospel love, but of selfish malevolence. As we look more closely at this, we see in the text that Diotrephes' ambition quickly descended into arrogance. And this is no surprise to us if we would just slow down for a moment this morning and hear this word and contemplate the state of our own hearts. How quickly, church, we move from want to need, from desire to demand, from hope to expectation. There is in the text an escalation from ambition to arrogance that crowds out the authority of another. While desires rightly guide our lives, demands will always rule over us. Demands will always rule over us. They crowd out the authority of anyone or anything else. And John is pleading with the church here to see that this is not a problem that lies exclusively outside of the walls of the church. No, the evil one is at work, wants to be at work within our hearts, 
within our congregation even, to dethrone Christ, to disrupt mission, and destroy joy. The evil one is not far off. He wants to be in this place. He wants to be at work in you. And this should give us great caution. Church, Diotrephes was not wrong about the controversy of his day. He was right on doctrine and wrong on love. Church, truth without love is no truth. And love without truth is no love. It is the unity of truth and love embodied by the members of Christ's body that displays the fullness of the goodness of God, the fullness of his beauty, the magnificence of his glory. Church, you can know everything there is to know in your head about biblical marriage and with a cold heart form a desolate marriage. You can read every Paul Tripp book there is on parenting and in hot anger scorch all remnants of joy and peace from your home. You can be full of systematic theology and absent of love. In the life of the church, which is John's primary concern in this letter, this could also today look like taking doctrines or practices on which believers can in good faith disagree and create a law that you work to subjugate your fellow brothers and sisters to. Please don't miss this in the text. When we divorce truth and love in the way that we live, we will always end up obscuring the work of God in Christ to save sinners and make all things new. When we divorce truth and love in the way we live, we will always, always, always end up obscuring the work of God in Christ to save sinners and make all things new. King Sandy writes on this a lot. He talks about this as the progression of an idol. When desires descend into demands, we ascend the throne of our own heart to pronounce self-righteous judgment, and exact sanctimonious punishment. In the text, we see this same pattern. Ambition turns to arrogance, which accuses and abuses. Look back at verse 10. John writes, So if I come, I will bring up what he, that, that is Diotrephes, what Diotrephes is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. In the text, today we see that pride cannot remain invisible. In our lives, idols will always reveal themselves given time. And in verse 10, Diotrephes' words that could have carried life in the gospel of Jesus instead held only the emptiness of pride's hollow promise. The wicked nonsense, the malicious babbling that Diotrephes speaks carries in the Greek the threatening emptiness of a boiling pot. The rolling boil produces threatening bubbles that are full of nothing, but nonetheless scalding to the touch. 
Church, if God's words have brought life to our dead hearts in Christ Jesus, can you not see that those are the words that you were made to speak? If you are unsure of the state of your own heart this morning, can I invite you to begin by questioning your words? Does my speech carry life? Do our words at home, at work, in this church, to our wives and husbands and neighbors and kids, do our words carry life? Or do they bring about damage, carrying only the hollowness of death's decay? Diotrephes doesn't stop with words. If we look back at the text, we see Diotrephes' conduct is portrayed as the exact opposite of Gaius's. Diotrephes, not content with talking wicked nonsense, engages in a series of punitive and abusive actions designed to secure his own way. First, he refuses hospitality to brothers. In an effort to keep all of the power, prestige, and profit for himself, Diotrephes could not see through his pride to the gospel reality that stinginess has no gain. And his error was further compounded as he prevented those who did wish to practice hospitality from doing so. Do you see here in the text how sin twists righteousness Hospitality is is cast down. Stinginess is exalted to the point where Diotrephes in the Greek is literally throwing out of the church those who disobey his rule and would seek to welcome those who have also claimed Christ. Our pride, our idols, they cannot suffer the presence of godliness, of good. Our idols, when in the presence of good, of godliness, will find a way to grow alone. Another way, if you are unsure of the state of your own heart this morning, to press up against that is to challenge how deeply you've pressed into community. Diotrephes was throwing brothers out who sought to challenge his heart. So often we don't have to throw anyone anywhere. We just stop showing up. Trying times, church, have a way of bringing the ugliness within our hearts to the surface for the world to see. And this is what John is after in the text. As we work through what he's writing here, we cannot leave behind the context of his message to Gaius and these churches. The context here is suffering born of strife. The truth, the fidelity of the gospel is under assault from false teaching, as we saw in First and Second John. 
there is division between John and these heretical factions among these gathered believers. There is a power struggle clearly in today's text. Suffering and strife have come in a very real sense to the churches John loves. And it is easy, it is so easy in this exact moment to miss the grace of all of this, but it's there. It is really easy to focus on the strife and suffering, the trying times such that it crowds out the grace, but it is there. The grace is, church, the bright blazing heat of suffering will bring to light idols of the heart. Why have trying times come? I can't see into all of God's purposes and what you may be facing today, but I know this. God's glory is always on his mind. And he is so committed to his own glory, church, to your holiness, that he will not waver when trying times come. What if God, as Jackie Hill Perry writes, is taking his time in delivering you from this difficult season because glory is on his mind? Because he holds as precious your holiness. What if God has stayed his hand so that circumstances get so difficult, so complicated, that it becomes impossible to fix it by natural means so that when it is lifted, when the miracle does come, you can know that you didn't do it. Because the truth this morning is some of you are so smart, so clever, so capable, so resourceful that God has to give you problems you can't fix in order to keep you. God has put you in a position to know humility because if you didn't, you would not know your need of Him. Do not miss this. What if God is more committed to your sanctification than your comfort? I can tell you that he is. And as I've worked through this text, it has worked on me. And I don't like it. I struggled with it. But I can assure you of this. Having thought through these words a lot, the goodness of God is sweeter than any blessing of my own kingdom come. More beautiful than the consequence of my selfish desire. This text, Diotrephes' conduct, isn't just meant to challenge, to push up against your selfish ambition. It is meant to topple your kingdom and rule that you would long for a better way to walk in. So in trying times, who do we follow? Where do we go? It's clear from the text that our own selfish ambition is not meant to lead this church or our spouse or our children or those that we work with. No, 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 no. It is those who manifest the goodness of God in truth and love that we are meant to imitate. Look back at the text with me in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. 
Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony. And you know our testimony is true. We see as a clear pattern in the scriptures a call to imitate God in Christ. In Ephesians 5, we are to be imitators of God as beloved children, walking in love as Christ himself has loved us. In 1 Peter 1, we are to be holy as God is holy. And in chapter 2, we are to follow after Christ in the way of suffering, in the example that he has left for us. At the same time, though, a parallel pattern begins to develop as the apostles invite the early church into their pursuit of the good life in Christ to follow them in the way. Paul writes in Philippians 3 that the brethren are to join in his example. And again, in 1 Corinthians 4 and 11, we are exhorted to be imitators of Paul's faith as he is of Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul and the elders put themselves forward as a model, as an example to follow in. And in today's text, we are exhorted by John not to imitate evil, but to follow in the good way that has been modeled for us by the saints. Don't miss this. Please don't miss this in the text today. Who we look to, those we hear from, they have a formative impact on our hearts. If we behold God in his word and in prayer, then we do good because we have beheld goodness. This command in verse 11, to not imitate evil, but to instead imitate good, is the only command in the letter. It is the one thing that John authoritatively asks of this church in trying times. To set their gaze upon the goodness of God that they might be transformed to do good. And we see this pattern, church, throughout the scriptures and most powerfully in the Psalter. In Psalm 25, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. In Psalm 119, we see that God is good and does good. So the psalmist pleads that God would teach him his statutes. In Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all of his works. So what happens to the psalmist? They will speak the praise of the Lord. As we set our gaze continually upon God, our hearts are formed in righteousness and good so that our words and actions are transformed to his character and beauty. And in today's text, John puts forward two guides for the way that these churches are meant to follow in. Gaius, from last week's text in verses 1 to 8, Demetrius here in verse 12. In the text, we see four aspects emerge in their conduct that reflect the life of one who has been formed by the goodness of God. Those who we are to follow after in Christ are happy humble, honorable, and honest. Gaius, we'll start with happy. Gaius, the recipient of John's letter. We just look at his name. 
in the Latin, it means to rejoice. His faith sustained in the truth was a source of great joy for John in verses 3 and 4. We see that it brings John no greater joy. than to see this guy walking in the goodness of faith in Christ. Even in the midst of trying times, there is a type of faith held fast by truth and love that stirs up and spurs on a happiness among the saints. And do you sense in the text how Gaius is the opposite of Diotrephes? While Diotrephes is wicked, babbling, bubbled over, damaging those who surrounded him, Gaius's faith-filled joy, even in the midst of trying times, could do no other than bring about a happiness united in truth and love for John and those around him. As we continue to look at Gaius's life, next we see clearly humility a meekness learned from having seen God in Christ. Gaius is exhorted to remain steadfast in his hospitality, likely because he has the means to support these missionary endeavors. Look at the text in verses 5 to 8. He welcomes strangers as brothers. Even though he is wealthy, we see that the poison of greed has not infected the heart of Gaius, but rather he is marked by a humble generosity in gospel hospitality. Which brings us back to verse 12. We have as a second example today, the conduct of Demetrius. We find in the text first that he was honorable and worthy of imitation by Gaius himself. Look back with me at verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. Gaius and this community of believers could confidently model their lives after Demetrius because there was no one, not a single person among them, who could bring a charge against him. Finally, we see that the truth itself testified to Demetrius's character. His life honestly accorded with the truth. It's easy to miss this, but for Chan, truth is a big word, packed with meaning. What John wants to communicate here is an acknowledgement that Demetrius' whole way of life expressed a commitment to the truth of Christ, which consistently resulted in good or loving conduct. John in the text is interpreting truth as a metaphor for the Orthodox Christian tradition, guarded by John himself and the apostles, handed down to this group of gathered believers even today. Thus, Demetrius is worthy of imitation because the whole of the active community of those animated by the truth of Christ testify that he has seen God and been transformed by him to do good works. So of course John adds his own testimony to the chorus of exhortation for the church to follow after Demetrius in truth and love. John writes all of this to Gaius and to these churches 
that they would see plainly that if the gospel is to persevere in trying times, then God's people must look past themselves and their own interests to behold the goodness and beauty of God himself. That they might know the way to walk in. We have gone through this text today that we would see that if the gospel is to persevere in trying times, then God's people, you, me, we must look past ourselves and our own interest to the goodness and beauty of God himself that we would know the way to walk in. Yes, certainly, God in his kindness gives us examples to imitate. We've seen that plainly in the text. We see it clearly in so many beautiful examples in our covenant family here at TCC. But if we are to imitate good and not evil, then the task before us is to behold the goodness of God and be formed into those who are characterized by honorable and honest lives full of happy humility. If we are to imitate good and not evil, then the task before us is to behold the goodness of God and be formed by Him into those who are characterized by honorable and honest lives full of happy humility. So John concludes this letter the call for peace in trying times. Look back at the text in verse 13. John writes, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. As we work by the grace of God to put to death our idols and our pride, it's peace that John holds out. He holds it out to Gaius and to this gathered group of people in Third John, and he holds it out to us today. Peace for trying times. But please don't miss this. For John, the peace of God is known among the people of God. You cannot, in the text, divorce the peace that John hopes in from the community of peace that John hopes for. God's family, the church. So if the task before us is to behold God and be transformed into those who do good, characterized by honorable and honest lives full of happy humility, this is not a task we can set out on alone. Dear friends, we need each other. The 
person to the left and the right of you. They need you. And you need them. And my prayer this morning is that there would be a real gospel humility that would grasp us this morning. That we would feel a freedom to state plainly our need for the gospel, for the good news that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead, that we would no longer be held captive to sin. Indeed, not just not held captive to sin, but set free to live full and beautiful, God-honoring lives. My plead is that we would be honest with each other about our need and honest with God about our need. And that we would find in those confessions, in that declaration, peace. So J.D. and the worship team are going to come back up. And as we conclude today and as we worship together today, I do genuinely want there to be a freedom in this place. If you need a brother or sister to pray for you, go to them. Can we just drop the pretense for the next 15 minutes and be honest about the state of our own hearts? Maybe selfish ambition has taken hold in your home. Feel freedom to confess that to your spouse and pray together during this time. Yes, many of the saints will be singing, but this time is an invitation for each of us to know peace. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, as we come to the end of this text and are invited into time of singing and prayer, of confession and repentance, God, I pray that this truth would ring out, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God, we can be honest in this place about our hearts, about our failures, about our need, and find grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ to hold us up in trying times. God, we do plead that you would move in this place, and having beheld you, that we would be transformed to do good, to live lives that are honorable and honest, full of happy humility. God, we trust that you are faithful to do this work. God, you have already done the hardest thing. You killed your own son to call us your own. How will you not today and forevermore graciously give us all good things? So it is in the name of Jesus Christ, in the power of his name that we pray. Amen.